Acts chapter 9. And the topic this morning is an active faith. An active faith. And we'll look at the second half this morning where we left off last week. uh, Verses 20 through 43. Faith is active. Faith is not a passive attitude. It's taking God at his word and proving it by obeying what he tells us to do. It's easy to say, I have faith. Well, when we have faith, it's followed by actions. After Saul's conversion, he started serving God. And that's why God saves us. He saves us to serve, not to just sit. And we left off in chapter uh, 9 and verse 19 last week. Saul, remember, after he got his sight back, he was baptized. He got something to eat, got his strength back, and he stayed with the believers there in Damascus for a few days. Now let's look at uh, chapter 9, beginning with verse 20, and it says... Let me get to Acts. I am in Corinthians from uh, communion this morning still. So Acts chapter 9. All right. Beginning with verse 20. And notice what it says. Immediately. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he, that is Christ, is the Son of God. Immediately. He's preaching about Jesus. The same Jesus that he had been persecuting just a few days earlier. But now he's boldly preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. And Christ is a major emphasis in Saul's ministry. And he should always be the major emphasis in all that we do. The dramatic change in Saul's life was a mind blower to the Jews at Damascus. And when a person comes to Christ, there will be a drastic change in their life. One man said, your faith must drastically change your behavior if it's going to change your destiny. Paul said, because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. God does not take this old nature and and do a patch up job. He doesn't just make slight improvements. He makes a total renewal. A total renewal. In the King James Version, it says you become a new creature. A new creature. Metaphorically, speaking of Christians who are renewed and changed from evil to good by the Holy Spirit. Paul said to the Galatian church in chapter 6, verse 15, he said... For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. In other words, for the Old Testament, for the, for the uh, Jews in that day, circumcision was a sign that you were a, a child of God. But Paul said in Christ, he says, circumcision or uncircumcision, it has no value. In other words, it isn't about some rite that we perform. It's not about some sacraments that we, that we keep. 
It's not about any set of uh, uh, rituals or ceremony. It's not about laws that I, that I do's and don'ts. It, it, that, that has nothing to do with where I'm going to spend eternity. It's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. We are to become new creations in Christ. Every new convert's witness for Christ should start right where he is. Saul started his ministry first right there in Damascus. Saul was not the kind of guy to sit still when there was work to be done. And it seems that he didn't waste any time making his way to the synagogues. Now, can you imagine what that must have been like? Think about it. We started off in chapter 9 with Paul having permission from the Sanhedrin, the, law, the, the, the legal laws of the land, the legal court of the land. He had permission to go into the synagogues and any Christians that he found, any of those that believed in Jesus Christ and followed him, he had permission to take them and arrest them. Now here he is, he's preaching Christ. Picture in your mind, news of Saul's arrival. They hear Paul's, uh, Saul's in town. That would create quite a buzz in, in Damascus. Here was this terrifying investigator of the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish court in the land. And Saul's got documents and he's demanding total cooperation from the faithful to help him with the job that was entrusted to him to seek out and to root out Christianity. To root out this heresy in his thinking. And the ruler of the synagogue would be very respectful to Saul because it wasn't every day, you know, that a recognized guy like Saul, a representative of the Sanhedrin, would walk into his synagogue. And Saul would probably be given the chief seat in the synagogue. Here, Saul, sit up here front. Take the best seat in the house. And all eyes would be on Saul, waiting to hear what he was going to say. And some would be staring at him with approval. Oh, I'm so glad he's here. And they'd been over whispering each other's ear. I wonder what he's going to say. I wonder what he's going to do. Some would be glad that he was there. Others would be nervous. When Saul was ready to start the proceedings there in the synagogue, he would ask somebody to hand him the scriptures. Then he would stand and he would read the passage. And then he'd hand the scroll back. And then he'd look at the congregation. And the crowd was just hushed. Quiet. And the, susp the suspense was mounting. Just waiting to see what Saul was going to say. And he begins to speak. He begins to open his mouth. Here it comes. They're getting ready for the condemning of this new sect. They're ready for this condemnation of these fishermen who was leading up this apostasy in Jerusalem. This news that there was action that was now underway in Jerusalem to put an end to this Christian cult, this, this, this called the way at that time. Demanding that those who knew any Christians in Damascus had better tell Saul or else they were going to share the same fate as the Christians. But instead... Taking the reading of the day as his text, 
in shock and dismay, Saul starts to preach Jesus to the people. It says, proving that Jesus is the Son of God. Those Jews in the synagogue, their jaws must have hit the floor. Shocked beyond belief. How the converted Saul would enjoy this so much proving from the law and the prophets and the Psalms that Jesus was truly the Son of God. Look at verse 21. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he, speaking of Saul, who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them, speaking of the Christians, bound to the chief priests? Saul's preaching caused quite a stir, as you could imagine. People wanted an explanation. What's going on here? What's up with Saul? You know, what's he doing? So Saul would tell them again and again what he experienced. On the road to Damascus. He would tell them again his testimony. Until the whole city was buzzing with this news. And no doubt. You always have that person who has to run off and tell uh, the, the, somebody. Oh man you know. You, you got you to see what's going on over there in Damascus. You got to see what's happening in the synagogue. Somebody would run off to Jerusalem to tell Caiaphas the high priest. And the court. Hey your most devoted supporter has become a Christian. And now he's boldly preaching Jesus in all of, all of Damascus. Verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. It says, notice, Saul, it says Saul was growing closer and closer with his Savior. And his godly affections were growing. They were growing stronger. And he was becoming more bold and more daring. And Saul was growing in his relationship with Christ leaps and bounds in his new faith. And this is what should happen when a person comes to Christ. They they should be hungry for Christ. They they should grow leaps and bounds. As as Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 1 and 3. He said, like newborn babes who desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If, here's the key word, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. It's like the birth of a child. What's the first thing that baby wants to do after he stops crying? After they've spanked him, he wants to eat. He wants to eat. His new birth. He is now hungry for that milk. And Peter said it's the same thing with newborn newborn babes in Christ. He says they desire the pure milk of the word. That they may grow by it. And that's how we do grow. That's how our affections grow for God. That's how we learn more about Christ. And we begin to know about the, the, the Jesus that died for us on a cross. We learn through the word of God. We should be hungry for the word of God to learn about Christ who just saved us. He says, if you indeed have tasted that the Lord is gracious. That is, if you have truly experienced Christ in your life, like Saul did on the road to Damascus, you are going to want to read the word. You are going to want to learn more and more. The word tasted means to experience, to prove, to partake of. 
And so that's why Peter said, if you indeed, if really you did, if you have truly tasted that the Lord is gracious, if you've really had an experience with him, you're going to be hungry for him. And it says that the Jewish community there was, was confounded in verse 22. Confounded. The word confounded means to throw an assembly in, into disorder or to perplex the mind. So those Jews in the synagogue who were, who were listening to Saul, who began to preach Jesus, he messed up their mind. They, they were like thrown into a disorder. They were, they're, they're perplexed. What is this man, what is he doing? What happens when we preach? You know, unfortunately, too often, little or nothing happens. What does the city know about us? What does City Hall know about us? What does our surrounding neighborhood know about us? What about the stores, restaurants, and schools? What, what difference does it make to those liberal teachers, those churches, and false religions around us? Does our preaching make an impression? When Paul went into a city, man, he couldn't be ignored. The whole town knew he was there. Riots broke out when Saul came into town. Pagans were furious when Paul came into town. And the authorities probably said, hey, get one of the jails ready because Saul's coming to town. Because he always got arrested. Paul shook up whole communities when he came to town. And here in Damascus, we have the first clue of his ups and downs, ups, ups and downs and, but his wonderfully successful life of this great apostle. And the thing that caused all the commotion at Damascus was the fact that, that Saul was proving. He was proving that Jesus is the Christ. And if you'll be honest with yourself and you will be a critical thinker and you read the scriptures, you cannot help come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. And you could say the baton has been passed on from Stephen to Saul. And no one, it says here, was able to disprove Saul's arguments verses 23 and 24 it says now after many days were passed the jews plotted to kill him but their plot became known to saul and they watched the gates day and night to kill him so notice this conflict went on for some time the jews turned against the truth that jesus is the christ and rejected the holy spirit all through the rest of the book of Acts, that was the story. How the Jews rejected Jesus Christ. Blindness fell on all the Jewish people except for a small number of believers. And we read that a, car, a careful watch was set up at the city gates. Guards were set at the city gates. A watch was set at the city gates day and night to make sure that Saul did not get away. Why? Because Paul had to be stopped. They had to shut him up. Just like many people today and, 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 and government, many places, they want to shut up the church. They want to shut up Christianity. Because we stand upon the word of God, which is not popular in this liberal society that we live in. And the government and the media and, and, and you know, all that's of the world. We stand upon godly principles. 
And they don't like that. And so Paul, he had to be arrested. He had to be stopped. He had to be shut up. And no matter, no matter what it took. Verse 25. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. Think of that. Paul. Just a few days earlier. He was, he was well known. And he was respected. And he was thought of as somebody. And notice him here now. How humble he's, he's been made by God. He's being lowered down in a basket to escape the hands of the Jews. All through Saul's life, after he, was, after he met Christ, he was hated. He was hunted. He was plotted against by both Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are those who weren't Jews. And as we read the book of Acts, we're going to see how the opposition and the persecution increased until Saul ends up being a prisoner in Rome. But he counted it a privilege, he said, to suffer for the sake of Christ. And, and, and the scripture says we should too. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12. And Paul said later on, none of these things, but none of these things move me. Verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried, notice, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. And we could understand that. At first, the believers in the Jerusalem church were afraid of Saul. And notice it said here that he tried. He tried to join with the other disciples. The word tried in the literal Greek, a literal Greek means kept trying. So he didn't give up the first time. He kept trying to, to, to meet the other disciples and to get into the fellowship with them, but they wouldn't have him. They wouldn't accept him. And we can understand why they were afraid of him because again, just a few days before, he would have rounded them up and had them arrested. Now he wants to join them. You know, they, they probably thought this was all a show. Maybe, maybe this is a trick that Saul is playing to get into our fellowship so he could find out who we are and then have us all arrested. The disciples did not believe that this Saul was now a disciple of Christ, let alone an apostle who had seen Jesus, the risen Savior. And besides, what right did Saul have to call himself an apostle when he hadn't been selected by Jesus Christ? So there were many unanswered questions that helped cause, you know, the, the disciples' suspicion of, of, and fear of, of, of Saul. Verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he, that is Barnabas, declared to them, the disciples, how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to Jesus and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Thank God for Barnabas's. The name Barnabas means son of consolation. What a comfort Barnabas was to Saul. Because Barnabas believed him. And there's nothing more frustrating than to be suspected and mistrusted by everybody. To have everybody looking at you and and, and to be rejected as if you were a leper. But the scripture says that Barnabas believed Saul. He believed this, what, what Saul had said and what Saul experienced. Barnabas came to visit him. 
and to talk to Saul. And he sensed that Saul was for real. Now, maybe Barnabas discreetly went around talking to other people to check out Saul's story. But nonetheless, it says Barnabas introduced Saul to the highest church circles. Think of it. Man, Saul, Barnabas introduced him to Peter, to James and to John. I mean, what a meeting that must have been. Saul looking into the eyes of Peter, this big burly fisherman who loved Jesus. And, to, and, and then John, the sensitive John who, who, who loved Christ. And, you know, when, and, when the, and, and then again, as they were looking into the eyes of Peter and Saul was looking in the eyes of John, then the spirit bore witness with Peter and John and they hugged as brothers in Christ. We need more men and women like Barnabas, encouragers in the church, reaching out to those who need help, who need encouragement. Verse 28 and 29. So he was, that is Saul, Saul was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And, the, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. So Barnabas convinced the believers in Jerusalem that Saul was for real. So Saul was able to fellowship with the believers now. Saul shared his faith in Jerusalem just like he had done in Damascus. It says here that he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. And it took boldness to proclaim the gospel of Christ in Jerusalem. Because there was a lot of hostility towards the gospel in Jerusalem. Saul, it says here, disputed against the Hellenists. Now, the Hellenists were the Greek Jews that Stephen had disputed uh, about the things Jesus said and the gospel. Saul could always present the gospel in a very convincing way. And you know what? This upset his enemies. It upset upset them so much that they wanted to kill him. They attempted to kill Saul. And, and you know, it's like when you share the gospel with somebody, you, you want to tell them about Jesus Christ and the love of, of Christ and, and what Jesus did on a cross for us. A lot of times they will get angry. I, I don't want to hear it. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't need it. That, that's, that's your religion. And the more you share with them, the angrier they get. Because it's truth. That's why they crucified Christ. The Bible says he did, he did all things well. Jesus went around healing. He went around helping. He went around teaching. That's all he did. Why would you kill somebody? Why would you hang somebody on a cross for healing people, for raising the dead, for feeding the poor? Why? Because he spoke truth that we are sinners. That we're lost apart from him and we're going to hell. We don't want to hear that, do we? Uh-uh. We just like hearing the good stuff. But people will get so angry. And that's why they crucified Christ. The enemy of the gospel, those who hate the gospel, those who hate the word of God, they're not shy and they're not quiet about their hatred and their opposition to the gospel. And all down through the ages, many Christians have lost their lives because of the cruel actions of unbelievers towards believers. And in the United States of America, you will find more sympathy for religious extremists and other cults 
even though they are cruel and they're misleading, than you will for Christians who are very kind in comparison. The body of Christ needs to take seriously the price that people pay to bring Christ to places that aren't safe. Even Jesus warned us. Luke chapter 21, verse 12b and verse 13. Jesus said, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. In other words, he says, you'll be arrested, you'll be brought before leaders and kings, and he says, but it'll be a chance for you to share the gospel. Verse 30 and 31. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, and they were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. So here, it was a time of peace for the churches. But it wasn't a time to get comfortable. You know, it's never a time to get comfortable because Satan does not rest. There are people who are always plotting against Jesus Christ and against his word. Here, though, in this particular, these verses, we read that, that it was a peaceful time. It was a time of rest. It gave believers a chance to grow spiritually. It says they were edified. It gave them a chance to purify their work. It says their walk, they were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it gave them an opportunity to increase in converts, it says they were multiplied. So they took this opportunity to rest and to regain their strength before they went on to the next battle that was to be fought. And there will always be a battle to fight. Now Saul has <clears throat> moved off the scene. Peter now comes back into the picture. And soon Peter's going to move off the scene, except for a Short mention of him in Acts chapter 15. And then Paul's going to come back and he's going to fill the, 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 the rest of the pages of the book of Acts. Now, if you hear Saul and Paul, and maybe you're getting confused. Saul is, Saul's what his name is right here, but later on he's named Paul. So Saul and Paul are the same person. But, you know, right now he's Saul and, and he'll be called Paul you know, later on as we go through the book of Acts. We see Peter, we see Saul at this point changing positions. Always keep in mind, God always changes his workers. He always changes his leaders. But you know what? His work continues to go on. And whatever you and I get to do for God, to be, whatever we get to be, to, to, to be a part of that work, man, it's a privilege. No matter how God uses us. Now, some say, you know, the greatest miracle that God can do for us would be to, to heal the body. To heal a body is the greatest miracle, God's greatest miracle. Others say it's raising the dead. But the greatest miracle of all is salvation, the salvation of a lost sinner. Why? Because salvation costs the greatest price, the cross. It brings about the greatest results. And it brings the greatest glory to God. Now in this part of the chapter and in chapter 10, we find Peter now involved in three miracles. Here he, he heals Aeneas. And he also raises Dorcas from the dead. 
And then he brings the message of salvation to Cornelius and his family when we get to chapter 10. Look at verses 32 through 35 now. Now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Peter had been busy in a traveling ministry. In Acts chapter 8, verse 25, it says that he was preaching the gospel in many villages when he finds himself now visiting the saints in Lydda, which was about 25 miles from Jerusalem. Now, we don't know much about this particular man, Aeneas. The only thing the Bible tells us is that he had, that he was paralyzed for eight years. That meant he was crippled and, and pretty much helpless on his own. He was a burden to himself. He was a burden to others. And there was no hope that his situation would ever change. And a lot of people are in that situation today. They may not be paralyzed physically. But they're paralyzed emotionally, spiritually. In other ways, they have no hope. They feel their situation will never change. But again, that's the difference Jesus makes when he comes into a life. The emphasis was on Jesus here. Notice it was in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. The announcement is that Jesus brings the healing. It's like the proclamation of the gospel. Christ saves people's souls. And our proclamations, our preaching, our witnessing have to have Jesus Christ as the main point or it won't help anybody's soul. It won't do their soul any good. The resurrected Christ, by the authority of his name, is what brought soundness to Aeneas here. Peter didn't tell him, oh, you know, go take this medicine and go do this. And again, not knocking medicine, but I'm telling you what he didn't tell him to do. He told him Jesus was the factor. Jesus was the key. He's he's the remedy to all of our ills. So the healing was immediate. The man was able to get up. The man was able to make his bed. He became a walking miracle. And then notice what it says at the end of verse 35, just for clarity. It says, so all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw and turned to the Lord. Now, Verse 35 doesn't suggest that the entire population, everybody who lived at Lydda and Sharon were saved. It's not suggesting that. It says all those who had contact with Aeneas were saved. And that usually happens when, when they, they, that you're close to somebody that you've known for a long, whether it's family or friend. You've known that person for a long time. You knew the condition they were in. You knew what they were like. And all of a sudden, they've changed their life. They're now living for Christ. They're walking with Christ. They're loving Christ. And they're talking about Christ. And you've seen the change in that life. And then you open your heart to Christ. And then he comes into your life. And now you're saved. And that's what's happening here. Those who had contact with Aeneas, they turned to the Lord. Just seeing him walk around convinced them, notice, that that Jesus was alive. 
It convinced them, you know what? I need Jesus too. And you can be sure that Peter did a lot more at Lydda than heal Aeneas. Even as, as great and helpful as that miracle was, Peter evangelized. He taught. He encouraged the believers there. And he tried to establish a church there in the faith. Jesus had commissioned Peter to take care of the sheep. In John 21, you know, after Peter had so sadly denied Christ three times, Jesus re- reinstated Peter. He put him back in the ministry and he told Peter, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, Peter. And so Peter had been commissioned to take care of the sheep and Peter was faithful and he carried out that commission. Verses 36 through 43. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works. Notice, this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they had laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to Peter, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. You know, it says at the beginning, uh, in verse 36, that this certain disciple named Tabitha, uh, which is also uh, translated Dorcas, it says this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did, but it happened in those days she got sick and and she died. And it happens over and over again in churches. It it seems so sad that, you know, and, and such a waste that such a useful, beloved Christian like Dorcas would die when she was so greatly needed by the church. And, and, you know, it happens often in our churches. And many times it's it's, it's hard to take. That somebody that, that, you know, is just loving and kind and, 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 and serves God and just a great benefit to the church and to the body that they get sick and or something happens and and they die. You know, and, and you go, Why? Why so young or so soon? They, they had so much potential. They were doing such a neat thing and, and people love them. And, and, you know, we just all the whys that come up in, at times like that. And of course, we have really no answers. But we must what we but all we can do at a time like that is submit. Submit to the infinite wisdom of God and say like Job did. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because God is so infinite in his wisdom, we can't figure him out. We we don't know why those things happen. That's why we have to just trust in God. Turn it over to him. The believers in Joppa, they heard that Peter was in the area. So what do they do? They send two messengers to go get him right away. You know, because Dorcas is, is, is sick. 
and died. There's nothing written in Acts that any of the apostles had raised the dead. So by sending for Peter, it was a confirmation of their faith in the power of the risen Christ. When Jesus ministered on earth, he raised the dead. So why wouldn't he be able to raise the dead from his throne in glory? The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4.16, seeing that we have a great high priest, speaking of Christ, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore, I'm sorry, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, we usually think of the apostles as leaders who told other people what to do. But, other, but often the people commanded them. Peter was a leader, but you know what? He was a leader who served the people. And that's the way it is to be in the church. The leaders aren't to be served and catered to. Leaders are to serve the people because the people is the ministry. The people are the ministry. Peter was ready to respond to their call. When they came and got him, he left. He responded to the call. Peter had the power to heal. He used the power to glorify God and to help people. He didn't use his power to promote himself. Peter's philosophy of ministry was this. 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3. Peter said, uh, Peter, Peter was telling, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Serving as overseers, not by compulsion. Don't do it because you feel you have to. Serve God willingly. And not for dishonest gain. Don't do it for the money or the, 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 the popularity or, or you know, the, the reputation you might get. Don't, don't do it to promote yourself. Not, don't do it for honest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted. Don't, don't, be lord over, don't lord over them. You're not the boss of them. He says, be examples to them. This is where many leaderships fail. Peter said, shepherd the flock of God. And, and, and if you knew what a biblical shepherd was like, that shepherd, when he led the sheep out, he led them out to find pasture. He led them out to good, to good clean grass and t- kept them away from things that would hurt them. The shepherd would lead the sheep to fresh, clean water. The shepherd would protect them from enemies, the wolves and the bears and the lions, and they would even give their own lives if they had to for those sheep that they were responsible for. That's the picture of what Peter said. When you shepherd the flock of God, the, the people in the church, you know, you shepherd them, you, you take care of them, you teach them well, you take care of them and, and do the best that you can for them. You serve them. They're not there to serve you. They're not there to wait on you. And you do it willingly. You don't do it for dishonesty. You don't do it for, again, popularity or, you know, for promotion or anything like that. You don't lord over them. You do... You be an example to them. And who's the example? Who's the the standard? Jesus Christ. You be like Christ to them. Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 28, he says, Just as the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. 
Now, it was a Jewish custom first to wash the body and then to anoint it with spices before you buried the body. So when Peter got to the upper room where Dorcas was lying, he found some widows there crying who had been helped by her ministry. And you have to remember, there was no government aid in those days. Widows or orphans and needy people had to depend upon their family and their friends for help. The church, that is the congregation, has the obligation to help people who are truly in need. 1 Timothy 5, 3, 16 and James 1, 27. The story here of Peter's raising of Dorcas from the dead should be compared with the story of our Lord raising Jairus' daughter. Because in both cases, it was the power of God that raised the person from the dead. And as with uh, the healing here of Aeneas and the raising of Dorcas, it got a lot of attention. Again, Aeneas was was paralyzed for, for eight years. Dorcas was raised from the dead. And many of the people around them trusted in Jesus Christ as a result. Verse 43, it mentions the many days that Peter stayed in Joppa. During those many days that Peter stayed in Joppa, he took the opportunity to ground those new believers in the truth, that is to teach them and establish them in the truth of God's word. Because you see, faith on, faith on miracles alone is not enough. Faith in miracles alone is not enough. A lot of people want to see a miracle. And I've heard it. Oh, well, if God would just show me a miracle, then I'll believe in them. That's not true. Listen to the, the, the again, in Luke 16, chapter, uh, verse 27 through 31, what Jesus said about the rich man and the poor man. Then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham. The rich man had died. Now he's in, in this, this place called Sheol, the place of the dead. The rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him, Lazarus, who died, and went to this place of comfort. Please send Lazarus to my father's home. I have five brothers. And I want to warn them. So they don't come to this place of torment. But Abraham said Moses. And the prophets had warned them. That is through the word of God. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied. No father Abraham. But if someone is sent to, the, to, sent to them uh, uh, from the dead. Then they will repent of their sins. And turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to somebody if they rise from the dead. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And still people don't believe. You see, miracles are not a substitute for God's word, the Bible. And it was a good thing that Peter stayed in Joppa because because God uh, met him, met with him there in an exciting new way. God's servants don't have to always be on the go. They should take time to be alone with God, to reflect and to meditate and to pray, and especially after experiencing great blessings. Yes, there were a lot of sick people there that Peter could have helped, that he could have visited and he could have healed, but God had other plans for Peter. God deliberately kept Peter in Joppa to prepare him for his third miracle that we will see in chapter 10. And it's important that Peter stayed in the home of a tanner. Notice it says he stayed in the home of a tanner, Simon the tanner. It was important for, for, for Peter to stay in this, 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 the home of a tanner because tanners were considered unclean by the Jewish rabbis. A tanner was a person who made leather out of animal hides. Now, the tanner was not a popular man. 
because of the stench of the ingredients that he used in his work. And because naturally he handled dead bodies, which was against the Levitical law. One man said, one commentator said, sometimes the hides were put into dog's dung for removing the hair. What job? In closing, the point is, God's servants may not always have the nicest comforts of life. Peter was not staying in a fancy hotel in Joppa. He was staying in this stinky house with a tanner. Simon didn't have all the creature comforts that most people enjoy. But that's this life. And this earth and this life is not all there is for the servants of God. We have a home in, it, in heaven waiting for us. And when God's through with us here, that's, that will be our new home. That's where we'll move. We'll have a new address. God here was moving Peter one step at a time from Jewish legalism and the law, and he was moving, them in, moving him into the freedom of God's wonderful grace. God's wonderful grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word, Lord. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for Saul's example. We thank you for Peter's example, God. And Lord, we are to follow their example, God. To serve and not to be served, God. To do what we do because we love you, God. Not by compulsion. Not because I feel like I have to, but because I want to. Because of what you have done for me, Father. Through the giving of your Son. And Lord, we pray this morning for anybody who's not here. Father, I'm sorry for anyone who here, that's, that's here and isn't saved or watching or outside. Lord, it's no coincidence that, that they're here and to hear the gospel. And if the Holy Spirit has moved in your heart and you have come to the realization that you too need Christ, as those that were around Aeneas saw him healed and Dorcas raised from the dead, they recognized they needed Christ too. And we all do. Rich, poor, famous, not famous, it doesn't matter. We all need Christ. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to say this prayer out loud. Call the sinner's prayer. And you repeat it to the Lord with all of your heart. Dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you, I am a sinner. I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me now to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Awesome. If you said that prayer, the Bible says your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And God forbid if, you know, if you were to die before you got home or whatever, you know, you're going to heaven. So again, um, begin to grow in that new relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and like, like Paul said, he grew closer and closer and he increased in, in his knowledge and his love for God. So you'll do the same thing. At this time, we're going to partake of communion. So.